from verse 1 of the passage we just read, is often misused as a cultural weapon by those trying to excuse their sin. It's also the verse that's most ignored because we live in a culture of judgment and blame. And we see it in so many different ways. We see it in the so-called cancel culture where a Twitter mob can serve as prosecutor, judge, and jury and ruin a person's life in just hours over something they may have said or done, even maybe years ago. Sometimes it's even something that doesn't even represent who they are anymore. There's no forgiveness or possibility of redemption in these kinds of things. We see this culture of blame often in our court system, and I have a lot of examples of that. Our court system is supposed to serve as judge and jury, impartially handing out justice, but it's abused for a variety of reasons. Let me give you a few examples here. There's a lawyer in San Diego that once filed a lawsuit against the city because during a rock concert at a city facility, he was forced, as he said, to use the women's restroom. Get this, he also sued the company that sold him the beer. That's why he had to go to the restroom. (laughs) Outraged by a referee's call, several football fans in Washington filed a lawsuit in federal court demanding that it be overturned. I've gotten upset at the refs before, but that's a little over the top, don't you think? And then there's the nine-year-old girl who sued the maker of Cracker Jacks because her box contained no prize. Remember Cracker Jacks? Have audio here. What do you want when you gotta eat something? It's gotta be sweet and it's gotta be a lot and you gotta have it now. What do you want? Lip smacking, whip smacking, patty whacking, ink and knacking, silver racking, cowboy racking, cracker jacking, cracker jack. saying that you remember that commercial. I remember that commercial. And the last uh, line in the little jingle, candy-coated popcorn, peanuts, and a prize, that's what you get with Cracker Jack. So I guess if you don't get the prize and the commercial promises it, you can sue, right? That's the lesson there. One man recently sued Kellogg's because there wasn't enough strawberry (laughs) in the Pop-Tart. Uh, The judge ruled no reasonable consumer would see the entire product label reading the words frosted strawberry pop-tarts next to a picture of a toaster pastry coated in frosting and reasonably expect that fresh strawberries would be the sole ingredient in the product. (laughs) Thank God there's at least some sanity in the court system still. Then there's the surfer who filed a lawsuit because another surfer stole his wave. In the city of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, was sued by a man who was asked to cut down a diseased tree on his property. So, of course, he put his ladder on top of his van to begin cutting the tree. And then he sued the city when he fell and he hurt his head. 
Jerry, is putting your ladder on top of a van a good idea when you're trying to cut a tree? Probably not. Yeah. There was the drunk woman's estate who received $1 million after she entered a closed city park and she drowned in three feet of water. Now, again, there is still some sanity because the state appellate court reversed that decision. The final example I want to mention is the convict who escaped from prison and sued his county and the sheriff for negligence. (laughs) Go figure. What do all these things have in common? They're extreme examples, but they reflect our culture of blame. Somebody's got to be to blame, right? But our culture of blame is only one aspect of a larger human tendency that even we believers sometimes must battle. It's the idea of being concerned about the other guy. What about the other guy? Remember the whataboutism? In the area of things like blame for problems or circumstances, forgiveness and judgment, recognition and lack of recognition, justifying ourselves and jealousy, even jealousy about the good things that happen to someone else. I could have called this message my quote-unquote other life, and I wouldn't have called it that if I had chosen that title. Not because I have a secret job as a double-knot spy that none of you knew about, but because so much of our attention, our thought life, is wrapped up and tied up in the other person to the extent that we ignore or miss what God wants to do in us as individuals. It's about individual responsibility, which is a very biblical notion. While this is clearly a problem in our culture today, as illustrated by the examples that we just saw. It's a problem in humanity that's as old as history. We read in James chapter 1, verse 14, that sin cannot be blamed on external factors. It's always the result of a person being led astray by his or her own desires. It says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. <clears throat> this illustrates a real difficulty that we sometimes face, which Scripture addresses in several contexts, including what we read at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, at the beginning of this message. What we will look at more closely in just a moment is the last verse of this short passage, verse 5, which says, You hypocrite, first take the plank or the log out of your own eye. This shows God's response to much of this idea of blaming other people, of recognition or lack thereof, forgiveness, jealousy, justifying ourselves. God's response is always, always to look at ourselves first, to look at our own hearts first, examine our own hearts. However, before we get into that, I want to take a short detour. We must pause here to be clear because you remember at the beginning I said this is a very abused passage of Scripture by usually people who don't really have a clue what it's saying. It's probably one of the most abused in all of the Bible, and we could point to many other examples of this kind of abuse of do not judge in our modern-day culture, in current events, especially verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. What I'm afraid has happened is that this verse has been so abused, so misapplied, that we believers even sometimes have the tendency to miss what it's really saying altogether. And consequently, we lose the emphasis in verse 5, which after all points out what we are to do first. That's a clear implication that 
something follows, and of course, in this case, it's righteous judgment is to follow. This verse is used by the world, and sometimes even by some well-meaning believers to imply or to outright state that we are not to judge, period, end of sentence. Yet there are many times that Scripture makes it absolutely clear that we must make a judgment. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, that we are to judge with righteous judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 talks about how we are to judge those inside the local church and makes the distinction between how we judge people outside the church and how we judge people inside the church. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says we are to test the spirits. Galatians 6, 1 says that if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now that's something you cannot do without first making a judgment hopefully guided by Scripture, that something is, in fact, sinful. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 says that if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. I don't know about you, does that sound like judgment to you? That sounds like a judgment to me. Even the very context of this passage that we're looking at in Matthew, where it says, do not judge, also indicates we are to judge when it's appropriate. Verse 5 says, in other words, then, in other words, after you've removed the log from your own eye, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, do not judge, is used to forbid any condemnation of evil or sin It's a clear abuse of Scripture. So proper biblical judgment's not only appropriate for believers, it's required by believers in some circumstances. So let's not make the mistake here of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not use this verse as an excuse to ignore what may sometimes be our responsibility to judge to discern with the guidance and authority of God's word. And again, there's a distinction between judging and how we are to judge here. When we have the guidance and authority of God's word and the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ to distinguish the difference between right and wrong, there's a great freedom in submitting our perspectives to trusted brothers and sisters. That's why I love the leadership structure that God has given us here at TCF. It isn't that 10 elders cannot make a mistake. It's that when I submit my judgment to the other nine, I'm a lot less likely to make a mistake in judgment. When it's just me and Jesus, I'm fallible. When it comes to judgment, especially about more serious matters, I'm always grateful to have a team of brothers to help me discern right from wrong and even help me discern good better and best in a given situation. You know, we have that here at TCF, not only with our elders, but with trusted and mature brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the sidebar, that's the caveat. However, moving forward, keeping that understanding in the background, we still find this passage that we have to wrestle with. And many others will look at that are telling us not to judge, but telling us to look at our own hearts first before we judge. There are areas in which we should judge, and there are others in which we should not. We should not judge, for example, people's motives. 
We cannot know why individuals do what they do. Nobody's a mind reader. We can't see what's in their minds. We shouldn't judge the service of another believer. To his own, his or her own master, he stands or falls. We shouldn't be judging the conscientious scruples about things which are morally neutral. We've talked a lot about that in the last couple years uh, with all the stuff about masks and uh, COVID and vaccines and all that. We've used Romans 14 as our biblical basis for that. We shouldn't judge outward appearances. What's in the heart is what counts. We also shouldn't judge harshly or critically. William MacDonald wrote, a habitual fault finder is a poor advertisement for the Christian faith. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3, but with me, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So think about this. The Holy Spirit is the only one in the true position to bring conviction. He alone is able to show what is wrong without hurting and wounding. The great writer Oswald Chambers, many of us have read the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He writes this, Cultivate the uncritical temper. It is not done once and for all. Beware of anything that puts you in the superior person's place. Stop having a measuring rod for other people. There is always one fact more in every man's case about which we know nothing. In other words, we don't see everything. We don't know all the facts in every situation. This should certainly at least slow down or maybe even soften our judgment process even when judgment is appropriate. Chambers also writes, who of us would dare to stand before God and say, my God, judge me as I have judged my fellow men. We have judged our fellow men as sinners. If God should judge us like that, we would be in hell. God judges us through the marvelous atonement of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty sobering way to think about it, isn't it? You want to stand before God and say, judge me as I have judged. Right? In James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he gives us a command in verse 11 and then supplies a number of reasons for stating that command. The command is literally, stop judging your brother. Evidently, this was an ongoing problem in the church at the time that James wrote this book, and it's still with us today. Criticism is probably the most widespread sin among Christians. It's something we can indulge in without feeling much guilt because we have come up with ways to disguise it. But James says, stop this. Stop it. The primary reason is not that it somehow harms the person who's criticized, though that might be true too. The concern is not so much for the person who is the object of our criticism, but rather it is for us because a critical spirit devastates us. A critical spirit does something terrible to the inner person. Our spirit. It makes us harsh. It makes us unloving. 
it makes us relentless and cold. I remember once in a sermon that Dave Troutman preached, he preached about bitterness and how we should nip it in the bud, using the old Barney Fife phrase from the Andy Griffith show. Well, bitterness is always the result of this other guy syndrome that we're looking at this morning, gone unchecked. Back to Matthew 7, where we began this morning. The sense in which Jesus uses the word judge here is do not be hypercritical, judgmental of your brother. Don't be a fault finder. In verse 3, Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or log in your own eye? So the Greek word here for look means to gaze at, to keep looking at something. In other words, it's an ongoing process. Jesus is speaking of a person who has no time to consider the huge log in his own eye, but who is always looking for the slightest misstep of someone else. So Jesus is saying, don't be a fault finder. Don't pronounce a final judgment of condemnation on your brother or sister. That's God's business, not yours. We are not supposed to judge without love and mercy. Ancient rabbis spoke about two measures of justice. They spoke about justice and, uh, I'm sorry, two measures of judgment. They spoke about justice and mercy. And we have to ask ourselves, what measure are we going to use? Some people use only justice when they judge, although they want to be judged all the time with a measure of mercy. But here Jesus speaks against this kind of behavior. He was speaking against judging by appearance, which he himself prohibited in John 7:24, knowing that God judges not only or not by outward appearance, but by what's in the heart. So when Jesus said, do not judge, he was not speaking against the legitimate use of our critical reasoning that God gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the inf- uh, by being informed by the word of God to make judgments. No, he was speaking against any judgment that's not based on the word. John seven twenty four says, judge with how? Righteous judgment. And where do we get righteous judgment? We get it from the word of God. Just as importantly, Jesus said in Matthew 7, we should first deal with ourselves. It says, first, take the log, the beam, the plank, whatever your translation says, out of your own eye. That principle is taught elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not just here in Matthew, although we should pay attention to that because this is the words of Jesus in Matthew. But we also see the idea in Galatians 6, 4, which says, but let each one examine his own work, And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to other. Look at your own heart first. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 says, But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. A consistent theme in Scripture. Examine yourself. Look at your own heart. Make a judgment about yourself. Allow the Lord to judge you before you judge other people. We can say one thing with certainty about judging others. While we are judging the other person, it becomes more difficult to do a very good job of judging ourselves. That's one of the many problems that a person who has a judgmental or critical spirit, people don't often, they seldom actually, look at themselves with the same scrutiny, the same measure, as Matthew says in chapter 7, with which they look at others. Now, someone like this might sometimes argue the point. They might say, I do look at myself. I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as they are. But the trouble is that he uses his vision 
on his own faults, or worse, his viewpoint is clouded with debris. That's the whole idea of the log. You can't see through a log. But he uses a microscope on other people. Consequently, quite often, this kind of person might have glaring faults that are seen by everyone but himself. One of the most glaring being a hypercritical spirit. Why is it that my dirt is never as dirty as your dirt? From my perspective. And your dirt is never as dirty as my dirt from your perspective. My sin never seems as sinful as the sin of others either. And that's why Jesus is referring to this here. I have a log in my eye. And I find that easy to ignore, although that's kind of hard to understand. But that speck in your eye is glaringly obvious. If you feel you have no faults, well... That makes another one. <laughs> the truth is that I really don't have the right to demand that you remove your problem without first acknowledging and going to work on my own. This is what Jesus had in mind. In marriage and other relationships, what usually happens is people develop an attitude, and I've, I've heard this in marriage counseling with, with couples. I'd move if you would. If you just take out that speck, I'd work on my log. Jesus said it needs to be the other way around. You deal with yourself first. You allow God to deal with you first, always. Jesus even says you're a hypocrite until you do that. Look again at what Matthew said in uh, verse 5. You hypocrite, first, first, first take the log out of your own eye. There's a story in the summer of 1986 where two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they fell into the icy waters. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem like radar malfunction or even thick fog. The cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. They'd collided. <clears throat> in many ways, God has been working this message in me for about 44 years, and that's because that's about how long I will have been married this coming August. <laughs> Marriage and other kinds of close relationships are usually the crucible in which this kind of message of looking at your own heart first is forged with fire. God revealed to me early in my marriage this fact. <clears throat> he is most often not concerned with who's right or wrong in any given conflict or argument. And that really bothered me because I was usually right. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed because that was supposed to be a joke. I'm sometimes like Mike Baxter, Tim Allen's character in Last Man Standing. He says, I'm not arguing, I'm just explaining to you why I'm right. <laughs> what God was more concerned with was my response, my attitude, my heart. Many times in our marriage, I'm convicted to be the first to apologize in a conflict. Not necessarily because I was wrong about the issue in conflict, but because my response was wrong. My attitude was wrong. And I found that once that's done, who's right or wrong is a lot less important to me at that point anyway. 
Back to our passage, the Greek word here is the word from which we get hypocrite, which is, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek word here, the word from which we get hypocrite, is interesting because it literally means stage actor. So what Jesus is saying, if we were to literally translate this, it says, stage actor, who are you trying to play the role of the true judge of all living? You first need to be judged by me. When we think about it this way, it's a really challenging reminder to us, isn't it? When we try to judge someone else. We can sometimes be trying to play God in their lives. And I find when I look at this way, I find it pretty convicting. Why? Not so much because a man whose vision was impaired by the log in his eye could hardly see to remove the speck. Though that's certainly true. It's more because he was behaving as if he saw perfectly. When God is dealing with each of us as individuals, he's less concerned about the other person than he is with me. This is the idea Jesus was communicating to Peter in John 21 when he said to Peter, what is that to you? You remember that incident in John 21? He said to Peter, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Oswald Chambers again. It takes a long time to realize the danger of being an amateur providence. That is interfering with God's plans for others. So the truth is it's the same for all of us who would be open to the shaping and molding of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. How important is this idea that we deal with ourselves first and not be so concerned with others? Well, let's look at the kind of company that Scripture puts this in. It's so important that Peter, the apostle, classified being a busybody or a meddler in other people's affairs right along with being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, and a criminal. In 1 Peter 4.15, it says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, or a thief, or any other kind of criminal. And then he adds, or even as a meddler. Meddlers translated busybody in the King James Version. And there are two words translated as busybody in the New Testament. And those are found in 2 Thessalonians 3.11 and 1 Timothy 5.13. In both places, they mean busy about trifles and neglectful of important matters. <clears throat> Especially busy about other folks' affairs, used of a person inquisitive about others' affairs. The Greek in 1 Peter chapter 4.15, where busybody or meddler is classified with these other terrible things, means one who takes supervision of affairs pertaining to others and not to himself. Now let me take another momentary detour here. Because as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, okay, we have different roles in the body of Christ, don't we? We saw earlier that there are times when judgment is appropriate and even necessary. So do not judge does not always apply in any and every circumstance. It's how we judge that Jesus is concerned with. God gives church leadership a responsibility and authority in people's lives. And as Jim Garrett has been fond of saying, you either need to be called to church leadership or you need to be crazy because nobody would want it. It's true, my brothers and sisters. So we, we as church leaders have a responsibility and authority in people's lives for pastoral purposes that sometimes require us to take a position or make a judgment about a situation and to bring that to the attention of a member of the flock. That's our job. 
And I want you to know that the TCF elders take that responsibility very seriously. But before that ever happens, the situation is prayed over and processed, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for more meetings than I can count. I have to go back and look at the minutes of our meetings to see how often we've talked about a given situation. But we pray over and process this to do our best to determine that we're following Scripture and sensing God's direction. So to put it in terms of the passage that we're looking at today, we look for the logs in our own eyes first. Before we ever getting around to trying to remove the specks from the eyes of a member of this fellowship. Any subsequent words or actions are always meant by the elders, by the leadership of this church, for love. Even when those actions or words may feel hurtful. Now I say this not to excuse the elders from these scriptural admonitions that we're looking at this morning, but just to say that we do work very hard to remove the log from our eyes so we see a situation as clearly as we can within the confines of our humanity before we ever seek to remove the speck from the eye of one of the flock. So in the case of judgment, having a me-first attitude is always okay. I always want to look at myself before making a judgment. This is an area in which knowing yourself is very important. I'm not in the habit of quoting an advice columnist, but Ann Landers once wrote, know yourself, don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. <laughs> there are additional areas, and we don't have time to get into the, each of them in depth, where this other person syndrome can affect us. As we looked at in the beginning, blame is a very easy one to see. Jim Grinnell once preached that blame is the world's shadow of what Scripture calls the accuser of the brethren, which of course is our enemy, the devil, as described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. We live in a world, and we looked at this at the beginning, that's very good as blame. We live in a culture of blame. Everybody's blaming somebody else for something. And it's always the other person's fault. Blame is as old as the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Adam blamed Eve, didn't he? One evening, several college students spread Limburger cheese. It smells bad, in case you don't know. On the upper lip of a sleeping fraternity brother. And when he woke up, the young man sniffed, looked around and said, This room stinks. Then he walked into the hall and said, This hall stinks. And leaving the dormitory, he explained, the whole world stinks. <laughs> Blame is the classic way the enemy tempts us to have the smell on our own upper lip and say the whole world stinks. As if it stinks and we don't. In addressing our other life issue, quoting Oswald Chambers again, another thing that distracts us is the lust of vindication. St. Augustine prayed, O Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. That temper of mine destroys the soul's faith in God. I must explain myself. I must get people to understand. Our Lord never explained anything. He left mistakes to correct themselves. When we discern that people are not going on spiritually and allow the discernment to turn to criticism, we block our way to God. God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize 
but that we may intercede. When we live by heaven's record-keeping instead of our own, we refuse to keep track of the wrongs that have been inflicted on us. God's love moves us to forgive instead of keeping score. Our heavenly record-keeping enables us to see others through God's eyes. And that's a key to beginning to overcome this idea of our other life. As we noted earlier, Oswald Chambers said that we should cultivate an uncritical spirit. That means work on it. When you cultivate, cultivation requires work, doesn't it? It's not something we just decide to do today and it's done. But as we begin to live by heaven's record keeping instead of our own, remembering that God judges us according to his mercy. That's how I want to be judged. He saved us, it says in Titus 3, 5, not on the basis of deeds we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. As we remember less the wrongs that have been inflicted on us, as we remember God's love which moves us to forgive instead of keeping score, as we begin to allow God to help us see others through his eyes of love and grace and mercy and compassion, we can and we will overcome our quote-unquote other life. Thomas Akempis wrote, What difference does it make to you what someone else becomes or says or does? You do not need to answer for others, only for yourself. So as we close this morning, how about if our prayers are along these lines? This is from a note in the clothing of a dead child at the infamous Ravensbrück concentration camp after World War II. This is a prayer that this child had apparently written. O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all of the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits that we have borne because of this suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all of these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Or maybe we should pray this simpler, shorter prayer by Peter Marshall. Dear Lord, when I am wrong, make me easy to change. When I am right, make me easy to live with. Let's cultivate an attitude that consistently looks at our own hearts first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is convicting. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit is always about examining our hearts, searching our hearts. And Father, we want to invite that, even this morning. We want to invite your Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to see if there is any wrong way in me, and to renew our spirits in you. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this very clear lesson on judging, Father. Father, help us not to judge without looking at our own hearts first. But also, Father, help us to remember that first, once we take that log out of our eyes, there are sometimes situations where we can and must judge. But Lord, we pray that by your Spirit and by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with our brothers and sisters in Christ, by your Word, Heavenly Father, you would help us to discern the difference when judgment is hypercritical or hypocritical and when judgment is righteous, Father. Help us to judge, as Jesus said in John 7, with righteous judgment. We commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.